Amen. Let's take our Bibles tonight and open together, if you would please, the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 18. Acts chapter 18 tonight, we begin our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. You might ask, well then why in the world are we in the book of Acts chapter 18? Well, the answer is simple. We are first introduced to this, to this local body of believers in Acts chapter 18. The Apostle Paul, while on his second missionary journey and with the help of Silas and Timothy, uh, was greatly used of God to begin this church here in this desperately needy city. The city of Corinth, geographically, is located on an isthmus. How many of you know what an isthmus is? How many of you from geography class? Just a few teachers in here, right? An isthmus is a, is a small piece of land that connects two larger bodies. And so if you look on, on the map, you see uh, mainland Greece, and then you see a little skinny strip of land which connects the, the Peloponnesian Peninsula to the main body of Greece. And right there on that little isthmus is located the city of Corinth. And Corinth was greatly influenced both by Hellenism of its day and uh, Romanism, uh, which was predominant uh, politically. And likewise, it was heavily influenced and steeped in paganism and immorality, which continually threatened the spiritual health of the church. But in Acts chapter 18, we find the record of events which transpired uh, in the foundation of or the formation of the local body of believers. We're introduced, just notice a few things together as we read here. In Acts chapter 18, the Bible speaks of, of Aquila and Priscilla, those great helpmeets to the Apostle Paul. In verses 2 and 3, the Bible says, And found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because, they, uh, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and came unto them. And uh, because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for, they, uh, for by their occupation they were tent makers. So Paul, he worked with these people, but they, they had a common spiritual bond in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was through Priscilla and Aquila that God really formed a great team uh, to, to go out into, uh, into Corinth and evangelize the people. We see that there was much opposition. The Jews, in fact, uh, completely uh, rejected the gospel. And therefore, the Apostle Paul turned his full attention unto the Gentiles. And uh, the Bible says in verse number 6, and, and when they had opposed themselves and blasphemed, isn't it amazing? I find it amazing how God speaks in his word, how the, the words that God chose to use. In other words, God, they didn't oppose the Lord, they opposed themselves. May I tell you, whenever we reject the Lord, we're not so much rejecting and opposing the Lord, but we're, we're setting opposition against ourselves. We're troubling our own souls. And this is exactly what the Jews did there in Corinth. And the Bible continues in, in verse 6, and it says, He shook his raiment, and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean, and from henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. And uh, the Bible says in verse 7, it says, And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, the one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And then and Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, uh, on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. So we find that there was this one key man by the name of Crispus that had some type of influence, that had some type of sway 
in society, this man placed his trust in Jesus Christ, and as a result, many Corinthians turned to the Lord and were baptized. What a great testimony. And Paul abode there in Corinth for about a year and a half or more, uh, teaching and, and instructing the church. And then opposition arose, and, and after some time, Paul and, and, his, and his fellow companions, they, they moved on to Ephesus, where Paul would eventually leave and head to Jerusalem. Uh, but there we find the, the formation of this local body of believers. Aren't you glad that the Lord is still in this work today? And that the things that, that took place in the book of Acts, uh, with the exception of some of the sign gifts that, that we see, which, which Paul addresses in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, God is still doing a work in the hearts and lives of people. He's still calling to himself a people. He is still saving people. He's still doing a work. Churches are being planted. The gospel is being preached. Souls are being saved for the glory of God. However, as we look here tonight, I want you to look with me. If you would please, in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter number 3. 1 Corinthians, chapter number 3. So the Apostle Paul, he writes to address not the problem of false doctrine, but rather the problem of carnality. And so as we come to the Word of God this evening, uh, this is a very, just a foundational uh, message tonight. Some words of instruction to lay a foundation, uh, a launching point, if you would, into the remaining to the whole book of 1 Corinthians. And if you're able, I invite you to stand with me. We're going to read together in, in chapter number 3, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says this, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse number 1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to, to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal, for, your, uh, for whereas there is among you envying and, and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the word of God, and we pray tonight, Lord, for your blessing and for your help. Lord, as we come to the, to the Bible this evening, we ask that you'd give us the, the aid we need, that you'd open our eyes, that you'd give us insight and understanding as to what the Word of God is saying. Lord, you have a, a purpose and a, and a plan for us as your children. And Lord, our prayer is that we would, would see it, understand it, and apply it to our lives. Father, that you would cause us to live a life that truly brings glory and honor to Christ. Lord, as we begin our study of this particular book tonight, there are many, many sins that Paul addresses, many problems, many perils that the church in Corinth faced. Lord, much of it had to do with, this, with the, uh, the culture that surrounded them, uh, being so far away from the Lord, so ungodly. And uh, their carelessness and just the casual, flippant attitude that they had towards sin. And Lord, our, our prayer tonight is that you would begin a work in our hearts. That we would begin to grow in our understanding of how heinous sin is. How, how awful it is, how detrimental it is. Not just to a local church, but Father, to our lives individually. Our spiritual lives individually. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us tonight, that you would challenge us, 
Help us take inventory of our hearts. Help us be honest before you. And Lord, if there's anything in our hearts tonight that we've harbored, anything that, that we've nurtured, given space to, Lord, we ask that you'd give us victory over it. And so, Lord, we pray for your blessing upon the word of God tonight. And Lord, again, if there's anyone here this evening who doesn't know Christ as their Savior, our prayer for them is that today would be the day of their salvation. But God, give us your power and give us your blessing. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, I'd like to draw your attention to what the Word of God says in verse number 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's really a, it's, it's not a compliment, but rather a scathing indictment that Paul lays upon the church at Corinth. The Bible says, notice, he says, Ye are yet carnal. Ye are yet carnal. That is not God's will for any of our lives as Christian people to be carnal. God does not want us to be carnal Christians. What does the word carnal mean? Think of my dog. She's a very stubborn dog. We have many mixed emotions about our dog. Some days we like her uh, on the days that she obeys, uh, on the days that she does what she's supposed to do. But then there are days that uh, she really doesn't want to obey, that she doesn't want to do what she's supposed to do. And the only thing that will cause her to obey is food. But not her food and not her dog treats. Our food. A piece of American cheese fresh out of the refrigerator. A piece of ham off of my plate. See, she does what's right, or she does, let me say, she does what only appeals to her flesh, to her appetite. Years ago, I think I've told the story, thank you. Years ago, we had friends that, that lived out west, they had, a, they had a dog, it was a cool dog. It was, the dog stood about this tall, it was an English bull mastiff, and the dog's name was Ramses. It was fitting. But my friend had to walk around his house. They, that dog lived in the house. It was another two or three people, you know, right here in, the side, in this dog. But he had to walk around the house with a rag in his hand because the dog slobbered so terribly bad. And every time he would pull out a treat, that dog there, from his jowls, there would be these clods of, of drool hanging down. It was, it was so, so gross. <laughs> but that animal was ruled by his flesh. When, when the Apostle Paul speaks to the church at Corinth and tells them that they are yet carnal, it's not a compliment. It's an indictment. You see, the Lord does not want us to live according to our flesh. You see, to live according to one's flesh, to be carnal, is the antithesis of what God desires for you to be. God, does not, God is not seeking a carnal people, but rather a spiritual people. And spirituality and carnality cannot coexist. They cannot go together. If we want to be a spiritual people, we must learn then to grow in our walk with the Lord. Look what the Apostle Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, and brethren, I'm sorry, and I, brethren, 
could not speak unto you as undespiritual, but as undercarnal, even as babes in Christ. Now, I was saved years ago, and I, and I hope and I pray that my level of understanding and application of God's word has grown over the years. And I pray that you can say the same thing about yourself, that you have grown in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we're no more babes tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and sleight of man, by cunning craftiness, and, and that, we have, that we are able to now have strong meat. You see, there are some things in the, in the Word of God, the spiritual truth that is like milk. Uh, we've got uh, babies in the nursery. Uh, I was talking to Preston and Carista this morning and, um, you know, Aurora, she's, she's growing, and, and, uh, but she's still on a strict regimen of milk. She's a month old. Um, it'd be crazy for us to set a plate of steak and potatoes in front of her and expect her to be able to digest it. She might be able to ingest it, but she could not digest it. And Christians, in our lives, there are, there are certain things. Paul says, listen, I could, I could share with you great swelling doctrinal truths. I could speak the great lofty things. I, he, could, he, could, he could share with them what he would soon write a, a few years later, uh, the book of Romans, and that great doctrinal treatise, the sinfulness of man, the, the sovereignty of God, and the salvation which is wrought by God through, by grace through faith in him. But they would not understand some of these deep doctrinal things. The sovereignty of God, the free will of man. Isn't it amazing? You think about these things, that God is so sovereign. We talked about that this morning. He's so sovereign. He's so powerful. He's so in control that he can give you a free will and still accomplish his work. God is sovereign. The church at Corinth couldn't understand these things. They were, they were stunted in their spiritual growth. Why? You know, as we look out across society today, and I'll use this term loosely, in Christianity today, there are many uh, professed Christians who, who have stunted themselves spiritually. Why? Because they have not given themselves to spiritual things. But they continue to live and feast uh, and, and, uh, on fleshly things. And and promote carnality in their lives. And it's detrimental to their spiritual growth. They'll, wonder, they'll say, well, why can't I? I struggle with this sin, and I just can't seem to get the victory over this sin. <clears throat> but they continue to nurture those sins. They continue to give place to these, these influences, these sinful influences in their lives that are, that are weakening their spiritual life, all because they have not been able to separate themselves from, the, from that sinful pleasure, which is harmful. They were, they were carnal. And as we look here, tonight we're just going to take a brief survey of the book of 1 Corinthians and see the three things that carnality produces. Not only will carnality uh, produce these things in the church, but it's also manifest in our own lives. You see it in the church, but you see it in individual lives. And so as we look at these things tonight, as we look at these, these, uh, these symptoms of carnality, 
May God help us be honest with ourselves tonight. And may the Lord give us victory. At the end of the message tonight, I want to share the, the key verse of 1 Corinthians. It's found in chapter 15. But if you're in the habit of writing things down tonight, I'd like for you to, to know the first symptom of carnality. How do you know if you're carnal or not? How do we know if, if the church is a carnal church? Well, number one, there is contention within the church. There is contention within the church. Why don't you look back with me, if you would please, in chapter number one. As the Apostle Paul begins, he, he addresses this, this obvious contention within the body of Christ. In verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 1, the Bible says this. It says, For it hath been declared unto me uh, of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Cleo, or I'm sorry, of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. The word contentions. What is the word contention? It speaks of division. It speaks of infighting. It speaks of quarreling. How many of you have ever have to, had to cause your children to stop fighting? There's contention in the house amongst children. You know, if you have more than one child, they often gang up on each other, don't they? Only the strongest survive in our house. But there's, there's contention. There's fighting. There's quarreling. There's division. He says there are contentions among you. And, and what does this contention, where are these contentions stemming from? Or at least what is the subject matter surrounding the contention within the church of Corinth? Well, the Bible says this in verse 12. He says, now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. In other words, they're saying, hey, Paul came in here. Hey, well, Paul led me to the Lord. Well, hold on. No, 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 no. You know, Paul's great, but man, Apollos is greater. I mean, he was, man, he was mighty in Scripture. He was a, he was a thundering preacher. Apollos led me to the Lord. I'm his disciple. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm of Cephas, or I'm of the apostle Peter. You know, he was, he was the first pastor, you know, he's, uh, God used him in the day of Pentecost. He preached uh, the gospel there. 3,000 people were saved and added to the church that day. I am of Cephas. I am a, I am a disciple of Cephas. Oh, well, I've got you all topped. I'm of Christ. Have you ever met a, someone who one-ups the other person? This is exactly what is taking place. But instead of a practical level, it's a spiritual level. They're looking for spiritual dominance or spiritual superiority within the body of Christ. And Paul asks the question in verse number 13. He says, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? No. The Bible says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Okay. The Bible goes on to say, was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I, am, I had baptized in mine own name, and I baptized also the household of Stephanas. Besides, I know not whither I baptized any other. The Bible says in verse 17, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, 
lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. See, there were, there were wars. There were fightings among the brethren. I'm reminded of what, uh, what James writes. If you look with me if you, in the book of James, please, holding your place here. In James chapter 4, we find a similar question. Now, the earliest book of the New Testament is the book of James. And you want to know what first century Christianity was meant to be like and what it's supposed to be like today? Read the book of James. It's practical Christianity. This is the basics here, how we're supposed to live and treat one another. But the Bible says this in verse 1. It says, from whence come wars and fightings among you? In other words, where do the contentions come from? Where's all the fighting? Where's all the fussing? The Bible says, come they not even of your own lusts that war in your members. What is lust? Lust is a fleshly desire. What is it? It comes from our carnality. And so if we look here tonight and we see contentions, why is there contention? Because of our sin. There is contention because of our carnality. There's contention because of our fleshly impulse and desire to be superior. But may I tell you, all of this stems from one word. It's the word pride. Would you look with me in your Bible, hold your place in 1 Corinthians and flip back to Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs chapter number 13. We see what God has to say on the subject of pride. In verse 10 of Proverbs 13, the Bible says, Only by pride cometh contention. If we consider what the Apostle John wrote in, in 1 John chapter number 2, he says, Love not the world beginning in verse number 15, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. What is this pride of life? Well, the word pride simply has the, the whole idea of self-promotion. When God speaks against pride, He speaks against us wanting to be something or someone He did not create us to be. Let me ask you a question. In this room tonight, is there anyone in here that is greater than anybody else? No, there isn't. There's not one person in here tonight that is more important more or more loved of God than anyone else. But we have this idea that we've got to fall in, in the rank. We've got to fall in the line. And we're looking to be the best. Now, I'm just going to be honest. I, I like to be good at stuff. I like to be the best. My boys, they pick on me. They, they like video games. I'm really not into video games. I'll play them, and they will beat the fire out of me at these video games, and they'll pick on me. But they recently, 
bought this new video game. It's, it's uh, Nintendo Switch Sports. And you know what? I have beat them bowling every time I've played. And, you know, and it's fun to beat them at bowling on the Switch. I might not even be able to do it in real life. But on Nintendo, on Nintendo Switch, I'm an above 200 handicap. Yeah. It's pretty good. Five strikes in a row. Beat that, you know. Now we understand this. God does all things well, doesn't he? And in our Christian lives, our demeanor, our deportment, our testimony ought to reflect that we do all things well too. But we don't do all things well. We don't do our very best or at least we ought not do our very best primarily for self-promotion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes, he says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. But the objective is God's glory, not personal glory. And when life becomes about me, I need to take a step back and ask God, say, God, is there carnality in my life? Am I self-absorbed? Am I carnal? Carnality brings contention. Notice the second truth we find here tonight is that another symptom of carnality is that there is condoning of sin by the church. Look back with me, if you would, please, in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 5 and verse number 1. And may I tell you, I know there are young people in the room tonight, so we're going to be very, very cautious on how we describe here what Paul is saying. But this is it's atrocious. The Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, it is reported commonly. In other words, I hear this, Everywhere I go. This isn't something that I've only heard here and there. Everywhere I go, there, there is talk about a certain sin that is taking place in the body. That, and if he says, so if I've heard about it, you all know about it, and you've chosen to ignore it. The Bible says this, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. And such fornication as is not... Uh, so much as named among the Gentiles. He says, so there's sin taking place uh, in the body of Christ that even lost people <laughs> want nothing to do with. It's awful. That one should have his father's wife. This great, terrible sin of fornication that that a son would have an affair with his stepmother. It's gross. So how could anybody, how could anybody turn a blind eye to that? 
May I tell you, to ignore it means to condone it. We can, we can turn a blind eye to certain things, but man, and, and this is an obvious sin. Whoa, that's terrible. How can, how can anybody, how could they ignore that? How could, they, how could the church leadership not address that? It's sick, it's gross, it's wicked, it's wrong. What about gossip? The Bible says that lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Consider the sins that we condone in our lives. Do you allow someone to sow gossip to you? Do you allow someone to complain to you? Here's another one. What about worry? The Bible says be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication in the Spirit, let your request be made known unto God. See, there are, but here's, here's, here's our idea. There are some sins that are more respectable than others. That's what we think. But here's a question. Is any sin respectable? May I tell you, all sin is reprehensible to God. The Lord died for the three-year-old that lied just as much as he died for this young man who was having an affair with his stepmother. We have in our minds, however, that, that all sin is, is equal. Well, that's, that's not so. Christ died for all sin the same, but all sin is not the same. There are some sins, for instance... You know, we spoke of a little child, three-year-old. You don't have to teach a three-year-old how to lie. You teach them how to tell the truth. Well, if, you're, if your three-year-old child lies to you, do they deserve capital punishment for that? The answer is no. Therefore, all sin is not the same. If all sin was the same, it would, it would bear the same, the same penalty in this life. We would deal with it similarly. If, I want you to look at with, uh, what the Bible says in the book of, of Revelation. In Revelation chapter number 20. We see here the great white throne judgment. We're thankful that Jesus Christ became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We, we read that verse this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 21. In Colossians chapter 2, the Bible speaks of Christ triumphing over our sin on the cross. And he is victorious. We have victory in him. Thank the Lord. We no longer have to live according uh, to the degradation of sin. We can have victory through Christ. But as we come here to Revelation chapter 20, we find the record of the great white throne judgment, which is not a judgment for us who are saved. It is a judgment for those of us who know not Christ. So at the end of the age, after, after the millennial kingdom comes to fruition and, and takes place, and, and after that great uprising that Satan leads at the end of that season, after the Lord puts that out and casts him into the bottomless pit in the lake of fire, he calls all the dead from all the ages, from, from the beginning of time till the end. 
and they stand before him where they give account of their lives to God. And the Bible says this in verse number 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened. And, uh, it says, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Now, I'm not exactly sure, to be transparent, what this entails, but, I, but God keeps track. And the lost who, who've transgressed the law of God and broken His commands, the Lord has kept tally and He judges them according to the works, the sins, the crimes that they had committed in this life. And the Bible says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You know how to escape that second death? To, be, to escape the second death requires a second birth. You need to know Christ as your Savior to be born again of God's Spirit. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And so we, we look here, we recognize that, that, there, that this church in Corinth was condoning sin. They chose to ignore it when they should have expelled them from the church and dealt with it according to Matthew chapter 18 and Galatians chapter number 6. Do you condone sin? Do you condone sin in your life? May I tell you, there's no sin that is respectable. There are some sins culturally that we see from, an, from a human standpoint as less significant than others, but, but understand this, that all sin requires this... Uh, uh, calls for the same penalty. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if, if that sin, whether it be lying, cheating, stealing, taking God's name in vain, not keeping the Lord's day, idolatry, all these things, disobedience to parents, murder, oh, so I'm not killed anybody. If you've hated someone in your heart, it's the same thing. Friends, if we harbor these things, we condone them in our lives. But there's victory in the Lord. You don't have to live in bondage to those sins any longer. Wherefore, if any man be in Christ as a new creature, old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Do you realize that your new man has never sinned? It's an amazing truth. Now, my old man sins every day. That's why Paul even had to say that he died daily. He said, oh, wretched man that I am. Christians, let us not condone sin. Notice the third truth we see here in this book of 1 Corinthians. It's this. 
there is carelessness. The third symptom is that there is carelessness in worship and conduct as a church. Oh, there's carelessness in worship and conduct as a church. I can just, people tell you that it's wrong to judge, but God says to judge all things. And you can judge whether or not a church is carnal by the manner in which they worship God and the conduct of their individual Christian lives. It's obvious. There, the Lord, in the Old Testament, noted the distinction between the holy and the profane. From the spiritual and the carnal. And one of the telltale signs of, of carnality is their carelessness in worship and conduct. Look what the Bible says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. Now this chapter is, is well known to be one of the key passages surrounding one of the ordinances of the local church, which is the Lord's Supper, the other being baptism. But here we find that, that the Apostle Paul, he addresses their, their, really their irreverence for God. Is God holy? Should God be worshipped a certain way? Absolutely, we would not argue that. Should God, be, should God then be worshipped according to the manner and custom of society or culture or according to what his word dictates? See, in most carnal uh, worship and conduct, it's not raw in spirituality, it's raw in the flesh because people say, well, well I like this. May I tell you, it doesn't matter what I like. It doesn't matter what I prefer. The only one who has a say or whose vote matters is God. And we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Bible says in verse 1, Be followers of me even as I also am of Christ. He says, Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you, which the ordinances are baptism and the Lord's Supper. He says, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For that is even uh, all one as uh, if she were shaven. So, so men, why do, we, why do we come into a building and remove our caps? Well, because it's polite, right? That's what I was told. Growing up, you take your hat off when you go in a building. And uh, why, at a sporting event, do we remove our caps when they play the national anthem? Out of respect, right? Respect for our nation, respect for our flag, respect for those brave men and women who laid their lives down to, uh, to preserve our freedom. 
He says, when you come into the house of God, so you take, you, you, men, you uncover your head. Ladies, you don't have to worry about it because your, your hair is your covering. But God has given you these things as, uh, as an aid in worship. When we pray, we remove our hats. There's, there's carelessness. You know, in our society today has grown very, very careless. A few years ago, I was asked to, to go to Apata over in London and, and attend the chaplain course that, uh, that they were putting on. And, and honestly, I wore something similar to this every day that I was there. And because uh, I was... Professionalism, right? Professionalism is the key. But there were guys, pastors from other churches that just t-shirts, blue jeans, walking in, just slovenly. People say, well, I can worship God in my home however I look. It's true, you can but we have grown so careless as a society that even in other, every facet of life, we have come to dress down. But does, not, does God not deserve our very best? I was talking to someone not long ago, and uh, they made... They made the statement. They hadn't always come to church here. He said, but when we started coming to church here, you know what, I, I started to dress a little nicer. You know, we don't make a big deal of it. But why do we wear our very best? Because God's worthy. Whatever your best is, that's, man, praise the Lord. Who am I to judge what your best is? Just give your best to God. We want, we want to not be so driven by our carnality that we become careless in our worship and conduct before the Lord. He addresses prayer here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but he also addresses how they, uh, how they uh, were mistaking the Lord's Supper. How they would come and, man, it was like a buffet. Every, every week, hey, you come, wait, I'm not coming, I'm not eating at home because we're having the Lord's Supper. Now, when I think of the Lord's Supper, I think of chicken wings, uh, barbecue sauce, mashed potatoes, and what they had made the Lord's Supper was something very contrary to what the Apostle Paul had taught them. It wasn't to be some great feast, it was supposed to be a simple ordinance of a local church that, that reminded them of their spiritual union with Christ, their need for personal revival, and the truth that Christ could come any moment. But they were careless in their worship and in their conduct. See, carnality, it manifests itself in many ways. 
And as Paul wrote this letter to the church at Corinth, he was not, like I said, he was not addressing some major uh, doctrinal issue, though doctrinal is covered here uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. He was addressing this, the problem of their carnality. May I tell you that there is a solution, that there is an answer, that there is victory. I want you to look with me as we close tonight to what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 57. And if you've never marked these verses in your Bibles, I'd like for you to, to mark them tonight. They're the key verse to the book. See, there's a problem of sin, there's a problem with carnality, but there's a solution. And the solution is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says this in verse 57, But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is victory in Jesus. It says, therefore, verse 58, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There's victory in Christ, and by his grace, with his help, just keep living for him. That's the answer. What's the answer to every sin we face? Is it not Jesus? Look to the Lord. Find your help from Him. But may God help us tonight be, an, be honest with ourselves, be honest before Him. And may our heart's desire be spirituality, not carnality. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed.